Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. In this week's podcast, you'll hear stories about a man hopping trains in the glory days of the vagabond, the transcendence of overcoming addiction, and a daring horse rescue on a Forest Service road in Montana. Our podcast today was recorded in front of a live audience on September 24th, 2019 at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. Eight storytellers shared their true personal story on the theme, Leap of Faith. Today, we hear from three of those storytellers. Our first story comes to us from Carl Stein, who shares his tale of falling in love with the rhythm of the tracks, riding trains from Montana to California and back while trying to avoid the yard bulls. He calls his story Vagabond. About a half century ago, I had a passionate and very physical love affair with Phil, my partner, over freight trains. <laughs> We'd rented a house on North 2nd Street, got a good deal on it, two bedrooms close to downtown for 200 a month. <laughs> but soon the first freight train rolled into the yard past our house. The whole house felt like it was going to shake off its foundations. The windows were rattling. We could hardly hear each other talk. The dust was bouncing on the shelves. Soon after, we decided we'd jump one of those freight trains and ride it to California. Now, riding a freight is a leap of faith all in itself. You don't know where the train's going, who's driving it, how the track is. You just go. And that first moment when the train takes off, you have such an exhilarated feeling. It's, it's a freeing, a feeling of freedom and escape. When Phil and I took off, we started dancing in the flat in the boxcar, pounding on the side with sticks to add to the rhythm of the tracks already there. Later that night, we pulled into Pasco, Washington. The yard was black, but I noticed a shadowy figure crawl into our freight car and make his bed at the other end. The next morning, when I woke to the sunlight coming in the side door, I noticed him standing there, all his gear put away. He looked at us and smiled. Well, good morning, boys. So glad to see you here. It looks to me, from the shape of your new backpacks and your nice clothes, that you're riding a train for the first time, maybe? We said, yeah. He said, well, there are some things you need to know before you just go skipping off across the country like that, or you're going to get yourself into some trouble. Like, take this big steel door here. 
Now these steel doors, you can't push them shut if you try. They're too heavy. But if this train hits some rough track, things really start bouncing around. And this door can slide shut on you and seal you like a coffin lid. Some of these cars get put on a sidetrack and they don't look at them for a couple of weeks. Another thing, if you ever ride the train into Portland, Oregon, make sure you get off the train before it goes all the way into the yard. The Portland yard bulls are some of the meanest people in the whole West. They just as likely hit you over the head with their belly club and take you to jail for the night as let you go. So. Remember, the yard bulls in Portland. Make sure you get out. The train slows to about five miles an hour and it's easy to jump off. And we said, thanks, okay, okay. Now, I've been riding the train for about seven years now. I used to have a job and a wife and a house and a pink Cadillac in Portland, but I started riding the trains. Now I rode for a couple of weeks and I was hooked. So I want you boys to know, don't ride more than a couple of weeks. <laughs> you might get hooked too. Okay, okay. Now, people think I'm a bum because I ride the trains and I don't go to work. But I'm not a bum. I'm a vagabond. A vagabond is a man who wanders the world in search of truth and experience. That's me. Soon the train pulled into Klamath Falls, Oregon. Mr. White Sox, that's what I call him because he always wore this pair of white, clean white socks over his shoulder and he was always stroking them. He said, now there's a grocery store right in the middle of town. If you, if you beat your feet down there, uh, you can buy some groceries and get back in time before the train leaves. They usually stop about a half hour here. So I immediately left my stuff there, jumped down, ran in my cowboy boots with the thick heels the, the half mile into town. I saw the grocery store and ran up onto the porch. I saw myself in the window and I didn't hardly recognize myself. It looked like a white man in blackface. It was from all those mile-long tunnels with all that diesel soot coming through them. I went inside, grabbed a loaf of bread, a quart of milk, some peanut butter and jelly, was paying the clerk for him when a boy runs in the store. Mister, mister, your, your buddy gave me a buck to ride my bike down here and tell you that your train is leaving right now. <laughs> oh, I told the clerk to give my change to the boy and ran out the front door and up the street. All the townspeople watching me probably thought I stole something. I ran up to the tracks and I saw the caboose about a hundred yards ahead of me and sprinted as hard as I could. 
I caught up to the train finally, but I wasn't gaining on it. It was picking up speed. The only car was rumbling up beside me was a, a flat car with, with lumber on it, a small shelf on the back right above the big steel wheels. I set the bag of groceries up on the shelf there and lifted myself up over the wheels, signaled to Phil that I was on the train. I could see he and Mr. White Sox at the door with George the dog sticking his head out. <laughs> Phil had the packs all ready to push out in case I didn't make it. I thought, damn, what if I have to sit here into the cold night, freeze my ass off? But shortly after the train stopped and I jumped off and ran up to our car and jumped in. Mr. White Sox turned to Phil and said, damn, you know, that was some fancy running. <laughs> Phil told him that I played football at the University of Montana and was an All-American. He said, oh, I don't give a shit about that stuff. I just know that was some fancy running. <laughs> that night, Phil and I were sleeping soundly when our train pulled into the Portland, Oregon train yard. I noticed Mr. White Sox had already jumped ship. As soon as the train stopped, there was a flashlight in our eyes. Damn, it was the yard bull. He said, okay, you boys, put your hands above your head and stand up out of those bags. I stood up in my boxer shorts and shielding my eyes from the flashlight. I could see he had a pistol in his hand as well as a flashlight. Phil stood up. He liked to sleep buck naked. <laughs> the bull shouted, damn kid, put some clothes on. What do you think? He put us in his patrol car and drove us into Portland. He said, I'm taking you to jail for the night. We don't put up with this kind of stuff in Portland. And he drove us right to a big church that Mr. White Sox had told us about. Inside the church were more than 100 migrant workers, all sleeping under the pews of the church. We found a corner of the church and lay down our stuff and went to sleep. Till five in the morning, when we, the alarm sounded for breakfast, most of the men went off to work in the fields during the day. Mr. White Sox took us aside. Now, you boys, you come with me. We're going to walk out the length of this train yard, and we're going to catch a train to California. I'll come with you. I'll show you how to do it. We followed him out down and across the yard and onto a train. But shortly, the train started to bend on a long turn to the south. And he said, boys, we're going to have to part ways here. Uh, this train's heading to the plains of central California. That's a long ways from San Francisco. So we got our stuff and threw our packs out the door and jumped after them, hit the ground rolling. Phil had to jump out with George in his arms. He was part St. Bernard, part Labrador. <laughs> as soon as he hit the ground, he threw George forward, and they both rolled and stood up. Okay. 
I rode the trains just a few times after that. I used to go to Spokane to visit my girlfriend, Linda. And at the end of the weekend, she'd drive me back down to the Spokane train yard where I'd catch a train back for, to Missoula. <laughs> but one time, all the, there wasn't any open freight cars, just a flat car with big concrete pipes on it about four feet wide stacked on one another. I crawled into one of the pipes, but when we got to, by the time we got to Paradise, it was nighttime, and I was chattering so uncontrollably, I thought I was going to die. The train stopped completely, and I jumped out and ran up to the third engine back and let myself in. All these controls, there was a big brass handle, and I thought, damn, that must be the heater handle. <laughs> But what if it's the brake? I slowly lifted it up, nothing. A little more, and I felt the heat start to spill into the floor. Beautiful heat. I put the handle all the way up and fell asleep on the bench there. Pretty soon, one of the conductors came in, said, what the hell are you doing in here? We were just coming into the Missoula train yard. I said, I'm, I was freezing back in paradise. <laughs> I had to let myself in here to survive. He said, well, we better get you off before we go by the yard office. And he jumped out and ran to the front of the train. The train stopped right by our house on North 2nd Street. <laughs> I went inside and took the hottest shower I've ever taken in my life for about 20 minutes or until the hot water ran out. I'm grateful for all those train experiences. And still today, those rhythms are in my bones and in my blood. Those rhythms of the train. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. Carl Stein started painting when he was 10 years old after inheriting his grandfather's oil paints. In 1969, a University of Montana football scholarship brought him to Montana, where he set nine school records his first year, including the still-standing single-season interception record earning him All-American honors and introduction into the Grizzly Hall of Fame as part of the championship 1969-1970 team. Known as Sky Thief, he may be the only Grizz player who was an art major and performed with the University Modern Dance Company. Carl lives with his family next to tribal forest lands of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, where he loves to paint, sculpt, play music, garden, eat toast and jam, run, follow black bears, and ski out his back door. Our next story comes to us from Tommy Cook, whose downward spiral into addiction is transcended when her drug dealer takes a leap of faith of his own and treats Tommy with compassion. This is Tommy's story of healing and grace. She calls her story, One Leap at a Time. A warning for our more sensitive listeners, Tommy shares openly and with frank language about suicide and drug use. If you or someone you know needs help with depression or suicidal thoughts, you can call the National Lifeline, 1-800-273-TALK. 
If you or someone you know struggles with addiction, you can find help at addictionresource.com. I'm in a bathtub in Tokyo, Japan, and for the first time in as long as I can remember, I feel totally at peace. I'm wearing my favorite outfit. It's this long, flowy, white and gold kimono, and I'm just mesmerized watching it float in the warm water, and it's making me reminisce. From the time I was six months old, my family moved every two or three years, and so I had a desperately lonely childhood. And by the time they settled down and bought a house outside of Seattle, I was in junior high school. So I had my big Coke bottle glasses that would fall off my face if I looked a little too fast. I had really bad acne and braces for three years, and I didn't know how to do my hair, so it was like this crazy triangle fro. And to this day, my right arm is much stronger than my left arm from carrying around a tenor saxophone all day, every day, because I was in all three bands. And I just didn't understand why nobody wanted to be friends with me. So I would sit in the back of the lunchroom reading my Star Trek novel, eating my cup of noodle, uh, you know, just trying to make eye contact with people. And my home life just wasn't much better. It was either icy, cold, and silent, or it was raging scream and violence and not much in between. So I very quickly got excited when this boy I had a crush on offered to hang out. And I was stoked that somebody was paying attention to me. And so when he offered me heroin, I tried to play it really cool. And I was just like, oh yeah, heroin, no big deal. But as soon as it hit my blood, It was everything that I had been looking for in my life. I felt loved and safe and like I belonged and all of my fears and sadness and terror just melted away. And I went from being this 4.0 student that was vice president and on varsity cross country and swim to barely, barely graduating high school because I was in and out of rehab. I kept relapsing, just couldn't get clean. I was in and out of jail. I was in and out of emergency rooms. My parents had to kick me out. I was living out of my car by the time I was 16 because I was so hell-bent on self-destruction. And so my last stint out of jail, I decided to do a Hail Mary. And I sold my vehicle, and I bought a one-way ticket to Tokyo, Japan, thinking that would be the answer. Like, just, you know, I haven't been able to get clean here, but if I move to a whole new country, it'll be amazing. And as soon as I got there, in less than a month, I found Ropongi, which is like the dark, seedy underground of Tokyo. And it's run by the Yakuza, which is the Japanese mafia and the Nigerians and the Rastafarians. And, and for the next three years, every single night, I started to play Russian roulette with my life doing whatever it took to make the two to three hundred dollars a day that I needed just to function. Because at this point, my tolerance had gotten so high, I wasn't even getting high on heroin anymore. I needed that much just to get out of bed, just to function, just to go teach English and make it through. And so after three years, I'm so exhausted, I ask my dealer for something cheaper. And he gives me my first bag of crystal meth. And what I had been able to kind of maintain for seven years using heroin, 
I lost everything in less than six weeks on meth. I lost both my jobs. My roommate left for a month. And when they got back, it was the middle of summer. The curtains were drawn. I hadn't slept in 10 days. I hadn't eaten in two weeks. I was just this skeletor. And there was bugs in my skin that I couldn't stop clawing at. So everything is just bloody and, and swollen. And she found me just tweaking out underneath the computer desk. And I remember the next morning, there's sunlight coming through the window, and I see it on my body, and I feel nothing. I don't feel warmth. I don't feel any emotion. And I realized I'd finally done it. I had killed my soul, myself, my spirit, like who I really am. And I was now just this empty, hollow shell and so I needed to complete it, and I decided to take my life. And that's when I put on that long, flowy, beautiful outfit, and I locked myself in that bathroom, and I took the biggest shot of heroin that I could, and just to make sure that the job was done, I laid in that warm water, and I just watched as it turned pink, and then red, and then crimson, and I'm blacking out as I hear my friends break down the bathroom door to save my life. Those friends rallied, and they got me a ticket back to Seattle. There just weren't any resources in Tokyo, and so um, they were going to send me back to be with my mom. But I still felt nothing, and so I felt like there was no point in trying to get better. So I packed up everything I owned, my contacts, my glasses, my laptop, my jewelry, my clothes, everything and donated it to the homeless shelters in Tokyo. And I threw some shit in a suitcase to make my friends feel better, and I got on this plane. And what they didn't tell me was that there was a seven-hour layover in Honolulu, Hawaii. So when the plane touched down, I just left my suitcase, left my purse with all my ID and money, and just walked off the plane with what I was wearing. And I didn't look back. I lived on the streets of Hawaii for over a year, homeless. Um, no one knew where I was. No one knew if I was dead or alive. And I tried to take my life three more times. And the third time I wake up, I'm on this beautiful beach. And I have this bent needle in my arm and my lips and my hands are blue. And I just, I don't understand why the universe won't help me be put out of my suffering. Like, why won't it release me from this place? And I crawl back to my drug dealer, and he looks at me in all of my patheticness, and he throws me this little brown baggie. And I think, oh my God, he finally took mercy on me. Like, this is a lethal dose of some sort of poison. And so I rip it open, and I take it. And a little bit of time goes by, and I start to realize I can't feel my hands. I can't move my hands. I can't move my face and I collapse onto the living room floor because what he had given me was iboga, which is this West African coming of age root that they use for their ceremonies. It is one of the most powerful psychedelics on the planet. It puts your body into an 18 hour catatonic state while fast forwarding you through the opiate withdrawal process, which is incredible in and of itself. But I had never had psychedelics until, until this moment. And so it was 
mind-blowing what I was experiencing. I was having visions of myself as an old woman in this dark room, and every time I would inject myself, I would just melt like rubber. And then I felt my mother behind me holding me and my aunties and my grandmothers and every woman that had ever come before me just rocking me and reminding me of the strength that I had come from. And I saw the perfect balance of good and evil in this world and how one cannot exist without the other, that everything is exactly how it's supposed to be. And it made me realize I was living in this cold, dark, empty shell where my religion was that I am worthless. I'm a worthless piece of shit. I don't deserve to be loved. I don't deserve to be happy. This is all I'm good for. All I want to do is die. I hate myself. I hate myself. And that's all I knew. But this experience was so profound that it cracked open that shell and let in light for the first time ever in my life. I stopped trying to die after that day. And at this point, you know, my family had disowned me, my friends had all given up. I had burned every bridge that had ever existed many times over. And so the only person I knew with any resources was my drug dealer. And lucky for me, he had parents who lived in Lakeside, Montana with an empty basement. They'd be willing to let me detox in if I gave him my food stamps every month. So in the biggest leap of faith of my life, I get on this plane to Montana, which is a state that I had never heard of, thought of, had no idea what people do here. I knew no one and I owned nothing. But I showed up on October 22nd. There had been an early snow. All I owned was a pair of shorts and a Hawaiian dress. And so I'm just in my Hawaiian dress. At least my knees are covered, hoping that I uh, will get warmer, freezing my ass off, wondering what I'm doing here. But I make it to that basement, and I go through the most hellish cold turkey detox you can imagine. But I make it through, and I start volunteering at this mental health center, and it makes me realize there are so many people who are suffering, and the people who are working with them don't have lived experience and deep empathy and compassion. And so that lit a fire under my ass. So I went back to community college, went back to school. I saved up my money. I got this piece of shit Hyundai Elantra that would rattle over 35 miles an hour and thought I was going to die every time it rained or snowed. And I got my first pair of long johns and a snow jacket and felt like it doesn't get any better than this. And I transferred to the University of Montana and moved to Missoula so I could finish my bachelor's degree and go to graduate school. Saved up a little more money, got a 2002 Chevy Malibu, felt like this is it, like I've made it. Doesn't get any better. And I just loved it. I was learning. I was learning how to help other people, how to help myself heal and grow and thrive. And and at the end of it all, I ended up with five degrees so I could be a therapist. And and a yoga teacher so I could dedicate the rest of my life to helping people so I could use everything I've been through so I could pay it all forward so we could turn our darkness into light so we could fight the good fight so that way nobody has to walk through the darkness alone if they don't want to. And that landed me my dream job at this incredible organization right here in town working for the people who are in the exact same position I was in not that long ago. And it feels like my life has finally come full circle. And 
next month, almost exactly to the day, I'm celebrating seven years clean off heroin and meth. <laughs> And there's just, there's not a single day that goes by that I am not absolutely overwhelmed by gratitude at the amount of love that is in my life today. Um, I'm reconnected to my family. I have the best friends anybody could ask for. I met the love of my life right here in this room. And all it took, all it continues to take is to find the courage to continue to just keep on taking these leaps of faith. Thank you. Thanks, Tommy. Tommy Cook recently graduated from the Clinical Mental Health Master's Program at the University of Montana and then landed her dream job at Open Aid Alliance. She's a native New Yorker who spent the early parts of her life moving around the country, including several years in Japan, before she found Montana, not by choice, but by luck. Thanks for listening to the Tell Us Something podcast. If you enjoy the stories you hear, please recommend the Tell Us Something podcast to one person who has never heard it before. You can subscribe to Tell Us Something wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. We have one more story in this episode. Before we get to it, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Thank you to our title sponsor, The Good Food Store. The Good Food Store, supporting Western Montana farmers and ranchers for almost 50 years, and local artisans stirring up our favorite salsas, baked goods, kombucha, ice cream, and more. Learn more at goodfoodstore.com. CabinetParts.com, the number one source for cabinet hardware since 1997. Anyone searching for the best kitchen cabinet hardware at a great price needs to go to CabinetParts.com. CabinetParts.com combines knowledgeable hardware specialists with all the best online shopping experience nationwide. CabinetParts.com is the direct source for all of your cabinet hardware needs. Logjam Presents, headquartered in Missoula, Montana, Logjam Presents is an independent and privately owned live entertainment company. Logjam Presents is the exclusive operator and promoter of the Kettle House Amphitheater, the Wilma, the Top Hat Lounge, and Ogren Park. Logjam Presents has created a unique artist and concertgoer experience that is unmatched in the Northwest. And coming in the winter of 2020, The Elm in Bozeman, Montana. For more, logjampresents.com. A few news items before we get back to the stories. We are excited to announce our new storytelling workshops. Let Tell Us Something help you craft your story one-on-one. We also offer group workshops with corporate and nonprofit pricing. To schedule a workshop and to learn more, go to tellussomething.org slash workshops. We are currently taking story pitches for the winter quarter Tell Us Something live event in Missoula. The theme is Tipping Point. To pitch your Tipping Point story, call 406-203-4683. All right, let's get back to the storytelling. In our final story, Anna Haslund performs a daring horse rescue on a forest service road in Montana. Anna calls her story Joe and Balthazar. Note that Anna is deaf, and you may hear her voice in the background of the American Sign Language interpreter, who is voicing Anna's story. (laughs) About four years ago, me and my best friend Erica were in French town at 
an organization called HART, which is an equine recreation and therapy organization. We were volunteering with those horses. Erica asked me if I wanted to go up to Flathead to pick up four new horses for this therapy ranch. And I was so excited, I said, of course I do. So it was me and Erica and her half-sister, Selena. We met the owner up there at this other ranch, and he said, go ahead and pick your horse. So I looked at all the horses, and I saw this beautiful, perfect horse. He was huge. He was brown and flowing mane. And I felt a little nervous, though. I knew it was important that we had to be able to trust each other. So I offered him my hand, and he sniffed my hand. He let me pet his nose. And I asked the owner, I said, what is this horse's name? He said, oh, the horse's name is Joe. And I said, well, that's really funny. My mom's name is Joe, so <laughs> apparently this is meant to be. This is a good connection. So I got on the horse. We're riding along. And the way most people communicate with a horse is they make a clicking sound. Well, I can't click. So I decided to make a kissing sound instead. It worked great. It worked great. He liked it. So a few months later, Erica and I decided that we wanted to take these horses out on a trail ride. And there were four of us. Again, it was Erica, Selena. She was about seven at the time. And the ex-wife of the owner. I'm not sure how she got in the group, but. So we're riding along. We keep going. We're on this forest service road. It was a nice big road, perfect for four people, four horses. So we're all riding along. We go on up a few miles. We were just gonna go up and turn around and come back. Everything was going on great. And of course, I was on the lead horse, which is ridiculous because I'm deaf. But <laughs> here I go. In about 10, 15 minutes, I start feeling in my gut like something's not quite right. I turn around. And oh my gosh, Erica is waving frantically. And I knew quickly that something had to be wrong. So I'm trying to kiss at my horse again to get him to stop. I tur we turn around and we see that the ex-wife was on one of the meanest horses. She yanked on the reins and he kicked her right off and she actually broke her leg. So I look over at Erica and we see Selena. It's her first time on a horse. Now she is scared to death. She's screaming hysterically. And we knew that we needed to calm her down so that her horse didn't get scared and buck her off. So we're trying to keep her calm. We don't want her to scare the horse. And now we're trying to figure out what are we gonna do now? How are we gonna get four horses down? And oddly enough, these two men come walking up the Forest Service Road. We thought, well, this is perfect timing. And they asked if they could help. We said, uh, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so we said, how are you going to help? I said, oh, we have a truck right over here. So they were able to pick up the ex-wife and put her in the truck, <laughs> helped her out. We said, bye. <laughs> so then Erica takes me to the other horse, and she brings me the reins to guide the other horse down the trail. And the reins slipped out of my hand. Then the horse, he just kept trotting along like nothing was going on. And I thought, oh great, now we have a runaway horse. So I have to get next to this horse. I'm riding my horse. I'm trying to use my horse to guide the other horse so that I could grab the reins. 
and while we were going down the Forest Service Road, it was really curvy. We finally get to a flat spot. I look at my horse, I look at the other horse, and I have this incredible plan. I know it's a little crazy, but it's a great plan. So I'm talking to Joe, and I'm saying, stay here. I have faith in you. Do not take off on me. Just stay with me. So I go over side saddle, and Erica is looking at me. She knows exactly what I'm going to do. She tries to tell me not to. I jump off of Joe. I scream. I land. It kind of felt like Zorro, actually. I jump over. I land on this horse, this mean one. His name is Balthazar. And I feel, this is incredible. I really should be in a movie. This was amazing. I should be a stunt person. So I grab the reins. I pull him back. Everybody's absolutely shocked. Erica says, you are insane. What the hell do you think you're doing? I said, well, I, I actually can't believe I did that myself. But look, everything's, everything's great. Now there's no more problems. So the ex-wife was taken to the hospital. Yes, she broke her leg. Selena got over her fear of the horses, and she's fine. And Eric and I are still best friends, thank God. Now we have a story we can tell our grandchildren for years to come, what crazy risk takers we are. Thanks, Anna. And thanks to Bonnie Curian for voicing Anna's story. Anna Haslin loves to help the community with her kindness. She is the one who breaks the barrier and who can do the impossible. Watch out for her crazy skills with Yaz Kicks. Her nickname is Anna Banana. Remember that our next live storytelling event is in Missoula at the Wilma on December 10th. Get tickets for that at logjampresents.com. You can pitch your tipping point story at 406-203-4683. Tell Us Something is proud to be fiscally sponsored by Missoula Community Foundation, a 501c3 organization. Missoula Community Foundation has been providing leadership to Missoula nonprofits and inspiring long-term philanthropy in Missoula since 2007. Missoula Community Foundation Thanks to our sponsors, Clearwater Credit Union, a force for good, clearwatercreditunion.org, Missoula Bone & Joint, providing superior clinical orthopedic care to their patients for over 60 years, missoulaboneandjoint.com, Access Physical Therapy, an enthusiastic team dedicated to providing compassionate and comprehensive care to their clients. Learn more at accessmissoula.com. Missoula Broadcasting Company, locally owned and operating four stations, including The Trail 103.3, Missoula's Quality Rock, Jack FM 105.9, playing what they want, U104.5 FM, your at-work listening station, and ESPN 102.9, focusing on city, state, and regional sports, giving exposure and insight to teams and athletes in and around western Montana. Learn more at missoulabroadcasting.com. Enlighten Lab Float Center. Unplug, reset, and recharge at enlightenlab.com. Gecko Designs. Visit the Gecko Designs team on North Higgins in Missoula or online at geckodesigns.com. Fieldy Design. Montana stickers, mugs, and apparel with a twist. Etsy.com slash shop slash Fieldy Design. Thanks to Cash for Junkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at cashforjunkersmusic.com. Podcast production by me, Mark Moss. Thank you to everyone who attends the live events 
those of you who download the podcasts, and most especially to the storytellers, Carl Stein, Tommy Cook, and Anna Hasland. Thanks for listening. Remember, your story matters. Learn more at tellusomething.org.